Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, August 21st, 2022. So glad you could join us this morning. We've got members of the media, academia, and financial services standing by as we analyze all the news and events for the week. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. Well, we're going to kick things off with a look at what's happening on Capitol Hill and in the retirement ecosystem in general. Joining us on the line to help break things down, you know them as Illegal Eagles, but they're also known as David Levine, Kevin Walsh, both are principals with the Groom Law Group, an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us from your respective locations this weekend. Thanks for having us on, Jeff. You know, it's uh, it's always good to talk to the the listeners during the, uh, the the dog days of August. And, you know, right now we thought it was going to be slow because with Congress out of session, the legislative front is, is relatively slow. But, you know, it, the, the litigation front kind of in the alternative has, has really been keeping us busy, uh, you know, these last couple of weeks. Yeah. So, so David, I know you wanted to kind of kick things off with maybe a high level summary in your analysis and we can kind of pitch it to Kevin, forget his input. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, Kevin, I'm sorry we're not together. A couple different things to to talk about today. First of all, for many of you, you know, we we haven't been on for a a week. So one of the things that's out there has been the massive wave of lawsuits brought by one law firm, plaintiff's law firm, over passive target date uh, funds. Uh, It's not the company named is BlackRock, but the reality is, is it could be anybody. It shows that the plaintiff's bar, and I think a lot of us have unfortunately long expected this, has decided that even even the beloved passive, which are so often cited in the complaints against plans with active funds, they too do not escape the gaze of the plaintiff's bar saying, well, one passive is not as good as another passive. And as we would like to say on the defense side, that as you look back in hindsight, well, maybe this one was better for this very carefully picked period of time. We're not going to get into the weeds on these cases, but kind of the takeaway of this, especially since, especially given that we have had some very good decisions in, in like the Common Spirit case and other decisions recently, it really highlights the importance of process and of how things relate to the benchmarks you're using in terms of what what are your benchmarks? There's no one right or wrong way here. It's but it's about the process. Also, it, it also highlights that there is no one safe answer, whether it's active or passive. We're not going to take a position on that here. The idea though is that you that the plaintiff's bar is going to look and challenge almost anything. So what's your process, how you document, what's your basis for that decision? All of that are key things. Number two, as Kevin said, it's the theme of litigation. For those listeners who are in plans with company stock, public company stock, there was another there was another court decision that came out that's a positive one that that this one really highlights the independence of an independent fiduciary monitoring a stock fund. And despite plaintiffs claims to the contrary, that you do not need to be telling 
if you are the sponsor of a plan, inside information or non other non-public information to the independent fiduciary. That's why you put them in. And it's a really, really good decision involving the Boeing company that really highlights that in, there's process ways to have company stock in a plan. Some people love it. Some people don't. That's not relevant here, but it, it actually shows that there is a nice path. And uh, if you want to use an independent fiduciary, it's not required, but it's something to consider. Last and definitely not least, I mean, my friend, Mr. Walsh will probably pick up on this and run with this. So I'll be very brief and I'll just tee it up slightly. There, there has been litigation, as we know, against the Department of Labor, whether it's on Prohibited Transaction 2020-02, or whether it's cryptocurrency, or whether, in this case, whether one of its advisory opinions, where it determines whether a plan is subject to ERISA or not, and how it all fits together, is, is appropriate and can be challenged. There was a decision literally just in the past couple of days where, it, where the court, and I'm Kevin, I'm handing this part to you because I know you love this part, really said, this is final agency action and you can challenge it. It's not a complete win for, it's not a complete win uh, on either side, but I think it's. Uh oh. I think it's pretty significant. Yeah. I mean, Kevin, I think, David, pick... I think you're, you're making some great points there. You know, if, and, and so I'm going to Kevin on mute. Some... Nope, we got Kevin. I'm on mute. Nope, we can hear no, Kevin. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Yeah, so I think the, uh, the key is with that, that last case you talked about, you know, one thing that's come up in, in recent years has been, you know, will the department issue guidance? And then when they issue things, you know, do they go through rulemaking? Are they are they going through a reasonable process? Um, what are they considering when they when they issue guidance? And you know, the, in the case challenging the the issuance of the advisory opinion, um, first off, the department argued that you know an advisory opinion, in it we say you know we could reconsider this at some point in the future. Um, so DOL said you know it's not final agency action because we left open the opportunity we might reconsider this. Um, and the district court said, you know, just because you might reconsider something in the future doesn't mean it's not final for now. So there's there's legal consequences flowing from your decision. So it can be challenged. And that that's significant because there's been a whole lot of sub-regulatory action from the agency in the last couple of years. Uh, and some of it's been very helpful, provided clarification that, that planned fiduciaries and others would look for. And others of the sub-regulatory guidance has, has kind of caused confusion where it seems as though, you know, EBSA may be trying to be helpful, the Department of Labor may be trying to be helpful, but... You know, they've, they've really gotten over their skis where they've issued stuff without getting input. Um, and that kind of brings us to the second thing, which is, you know, when you challenge these things or when the department issues something that's supposed to be binding, um, one thing they're supposed to take into account is, you know, the input they get um, in, in, you know, crafting whatever it is they're releasing. And at least in this case, uh, the, the federal court said, you know, when, when people asked you for guidance, um, they provided a whole bunch of, of citations. They provided a whole bunch of reasons for, you know, why they wanted what they asked for. Um, and, you know, Department of Labor, you addressed some of these, but you didn't address really, you know, all of kind of the key points they made for why you should have gone in their favor instead of the way you went. Um, and so the federal court said, you know, if you're going to be, you know, if you're taking action like this in order to, you know, really satisfy the APA, you need to take all the comments into account and at least explain, you know, why you're choosing one path over another. So, you know, I, I think this is a case to watch. Uh, it was sent back to the district court for further action to figure out what the remedy should be. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I think with other agency actions, they'll be worth, you know, 
when you're in the rulemaking process, when you're seeking guidance, it's probably worth pointing out to the agency that, you know, this case is out there um, in, a, in a friendly manner. And if the department, you know, if there's guidance out there that, that is particularly egregious, um, it provides kind of a, a rubric for a potential challenge. Oh, I like that. Um, I like that word rubric. rubric. Yeah, that was a very good word. I have to go pull up my dictionary on that one. Uh, can I just follow I up? I try to use one, uh, one word a week. Yeah, we that's should... me. One word a week. So when I was in fifth grade, this is going off tangent, we used to have this competition called Win a Word, and you would try to stump the principal if you found a word in your regular reading that you didn't know. You looked it up. You tried to stump the uh, principal. So that was always an event in our class. All right, I have a, I have a follow-up question for both of you, um, just related to the company stock case. And I remember – Enron, WorldCom. I remember Sarbanes-Oxley. I was I was a record keeper back then. Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley reporting, and then there was a whole kerfluffle related to vesting. How much of this company stock case builds on? Without going into all the weeds here, I don't want to go into the weeds, but I just want to kind of give the audience the example of how these cases build on one another and how history uh, helps shape. Policy. So, how much of the Boeing case, or just stock in general, is and reforms built upon what happened in 2002 with Enron, WorldCom, and some of the company stock things that we dealt with uh, from a legislative and regulatory perspective? And, and so I would I argue, Jeff, that Jeff, I, I think the way I would argue it is, yes, a lot of people look back at Enron and what happened there. But my big focus on this is actually the Dudenhofer case, which was, I think, 2014. That's where I'd actually anchor this. This just highlights the trend that we've had with a couple exceptions. I think it was IBM and J&J, both of which I believe settled, although maybe J&J, I forget where it ended. The key on this is the vast majority of his lawsuits involving public company stock and plans at this point have been resolved to the benefit of the defense. And this is another case that just highlights that process. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't go back to Enron per se. I'd say it goes back to the Supreme Court and go from there. Sorry, Kevin. I figured I had something relatively short. Yeah, no, I thought that was great. I mean, I I think one of the the keys is if we look back at Enron, there was, you know, really not not even our area of law. There was a fair amount of accounting fraud. There was a fair amount of, you know, issues that that came up. And, you know, I I worked for Congressman Oxley back when – you know, back when when you know these uh, kind of accounting reforms were were you know being put in place, um, and what we've seen is you know less a focus on kind of the the issues that you saw in Enron, which was just kind of pure fraud, um, and more you know discussion about you know who's in a position to you know make decisions on behalf of the plan. Um, you know, what do you do if you have material non-public information? Are there ways to you know, satisfy your corporate role while also satisfying your ERISA role. And, and, you know, in some of these cases where there's a a third party evaluating it, it adds, you know, an extra, you know, layer of protection from having individuals in a position where they may have, have different duties. Yeah. And, and, and general, just gentlemen, just to follow up on the data issue, I mean, this is not going away data, just by and large in privacy, uh, this is not something that's, that's just talked about in the benefit space. This is everywhere. Everywhere you go. I mean, I just saw something around the EU um, and, and privacy. Uh, but you gentlemen are following this one as well. Um, there's a lot to kind of sift through here when it comes to your data, what happens when you use your data. And by the way, I got a, privacy, a uh, data breach notification this morning when I checked the mail for a health provider. So 
concerning to me, but but privacy is, I guess, one of the main issues, not just in the benefit space. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think privacy is, uh, it, it, it's, I mean, one of the struggles we're facing right now with privacy is, you know, Congress is working on legislation, but they haven't done legislation yet. Um, I think, you know, a number of regulators have highlighted that privacy could be a concern. Europe has a, a general data protection regulation. Um, and then California has a privacy thing. And at the, the agency level, we've got a whole host of agencies that are trying to figure out, you know, whose turf is it going to be? Um, and at some point, it's going to need, need to sort it out. Otherwise, you know, can too many – having one chief chef makes sense. Having a whole bunch of chefs you answer to uh, really can mess up a dish. Ooh, another good, another good alliteration yeah. or metaphor. Uh, Jeff, yeah. I, Jeff, I got to admit, I think we should close on that. That's the perfect way to say it. That was great. Uh, David Levine, Kevin Walsh, great to see you or speak with you, not see you. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the program again very soon, gents. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, listeners. Bye, guys. Welcome back. Now we're going to shift gears, talk about consumer products, technology, and a lot more. Joining us on the line, he is the managing editor for TheStreet.com, Daniel Klein. Dan, thanks so much for stopping by the program this morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really always great to get your perspective and a lot of cumulative knowledge there about technology, but also finance. And so what I want to do, let's talk about – let's focus on Apple this this week. And I think that's because there's a lot of things going on with Apple that I think permeate – the um, entertainment and digital ecosystem. So number one, it's been announced that uh, Apple will release its new iPhone 14. So I I guess when you heard that news, Dan, uh, you're a fanboy of new products and services. Uh, What, what did that raise the back, the hair on the back of your head or or in the back of your arm? It it did. And, and mentally I know I'm making a mistake, but I know I'm going to order the new iPhone. And this is maybe a little bit – if Apple – if you could say Apple has a problem, I think the problem is when was the last time a new iPhone had a feature that you were really excited? So I'll tell you now. They haven't said this yet, but they're going to claim the battery lasts longer and the camera is better and maybe the screen is more resistant to breaking. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, I drop my phone all the time and the screen never breaks, but I used to drop my phone all the time back when they didn't say how hard it was to break and it never broke. So I don't know that I'll be making a good choice in buying a new iPhone, but I'll almost certainly buy a new iPhone. Dan, the price is um, about $800 for the 14, $1,000, $1,100 for the Pro, and the 1200 for the Max is what people are reporting. Now, that, that, it varies depending on what memory package you have. But as you're describing that, without even knowing the details, better, better battery life, better camera uh, – for the people out there listening, do I need to rush? And, and they just use their phone for maybe scrolling, email, social media, maybe a little web routing, maybe a little gaming, and maybe a little uh, watching um, TV or not teaming, streaming. Uh, do I need to run out and get that thing? So I think the average person should replace their phone roughly every four years. And, <clears throat> and I think most people finance their phone or, or pay for an installment, however you look at it over two years. And I think it's pretty reasonable to pay for it for two years and get a couple years free. And in that couple years, pay attention to when you might be able to get last year's model for almost nothing and sort of keep yourself in that, like, not a big payment 
what I what I do in getting the latest one every year, I always pretend it's for work. Oh, I have to have the new one because, you know, I'm a technology writer. And that's an absolute lie. I don't have to do that. I just like having it. But <laughs> for, me, it's, for me, it's absolutely an extravagance. And I'll point out, because I am a, a person who tries to, to give people advice on saving money, I live in a house that costs about half as much as what we can afford, partially because I know I'm going to do stupid things like buy the new iPhone. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's an affordable indulgence. It's something that I'll be excited about for like 48 hours, and then I'll realize, no, it's no different. Um, I do you know, hope there, the, that the bigger size has a little bit more screen, so maybe that'll be a benefit. And I do everything on my phone. We were, we were, we were talking about a book club at, at the office, I mean, metaphorically the office yesterday, and some people were buying the physical book, some people were buying the audio book, and I just said, well, I read on my phone. And so I really do have my phone in my hands at, at, at pretty much all times. I'm not typing on a computer. But no, the average person does not need to buy a new iPhone every year. You know, at best, you should buy it every other year to at least keep your payment the same and not be paying for two at once. All right, Dan. Um, I want to kind of pivot off of that. And Apple recently released a new update to iOS and macOS because of some security flaws. And uh, apparently there were some vulnerabilities that allowed hackers to take over um, the admin component of your phone. I want to get your reaction to that. Um, First of all, quick, look, everything's vulnerable and it's a quick move by Apple, but I want to get your reaction to that and what does that mean for the broader cybersecurity privacy um, discussion happening? Yeah, Jeff, before we get into that, can you uh, send me your social security number so I can verify that you're you? I just texted it to you. <laughs> no, I, and, I, and I just say that, that <laughs> everyone be wary of everything. So when there is an update for your computer or your iPhone, you should auto-update, or you should update the first night you get it, because it almost always involves security. Yeah, I mean, every now and then the iPhone update is about, like, giving you five more emojis, but for the most part, there's always a security element. And there's a lot of evil in the world. It is really important to stay ahead of it. I have never had an issue on my Mac the way I did when I had PCs with viruses and other things. Um, And that's generally true, but that doesn't work if you don't update. So it's really important to update, and it's really important across your life to practice good security. You know, I mean, I realized yesterday I was standing outside in my driveway reading my credit card number to my travel agent. And usually, mm. and there was no one around, and I was outside. It wasn't like I was at a Starbucks doing it. Uh, I don't really think my neighbor is going to steal my credit card number. Uh, but it was kind of a dumb move. And usually, my travel agent and I use Signal, which is a very secure, like, texting app where I could send her stuff like that. In this case, um, I was buying something that I wanted the, the protection of paying for it on my American Express, which was a number she didn't have. Um, but... It was a breach in protocol. It was sort of doing things not correctly, and you have to be very, very conscious of doing things the right way. All right, Dan, to that end, uh, again, I want to stay on the Apple theme this week. Um, Apple, or at least it's been talked about by like um, Mac rumors and others that when it comes to the apps, when it comes to the phones, and I think this goes back to our streaming conversation from last week, by the way, is that there, we're going to see more ads on our phones uh, through some of these apps and um, and so I want to get your thoughts about that. I want to get your thoughts as it t- relates to privacy. And then how does that compare with the what I would call like the ad-supported video model uh, that we're seeing on streaming kind of uh, 
you know, show up in places like Amazon and Discovery Plus, et cetera? Funny that we had all this evolution for everyone to realize that television had it right in the first place, that we're perfectly willing to sit through commercials in order to get something for free. Um, and I think it has to be executed correctly. So we've talked about this before. I watched The Flash, which airs on, on the CW, and you can wait a year and watch it on Netflix, or you can watch the episodes you've missed or while I'm traveling, which is what I tend to watch them, on the CW app, and it plays ads. It forces you to watch ads. And here's the problem. It's always an ad for Progressive. So it's always one of those hyper-annoying ads, <laughs> and the ad will often play four times in a row at every single commercial break. There is nothing effective about giving me the same ad 24 times in the course of a one-hour program. That stuff has to get fixed, and I don't even think there's a privacy issue if, you, if you're a little bit smart about it. Like, if you know I'm watching The Flash and you know what else I've watched on the CW app, that tells you a lot about me, and you should be able to serve me the correct ad. But serving me a 30-second ad five times and giving me different ones, even if it's the same company, might be effective. Serving me the same ad where Flo and John Hamm are interacting just makes me <laughs> want to burn. Yeah, makes me want to burn down Progressive's headquarters. Like literally, there's a few companies like Lending Tree. Lending Tree is running an ad right now. But if I had a mortgage with Lending Tree, I'd burn my house down. That is how annoying <laughs> that is. That has, that has to be fixed. This has to be a good experience. It has to be an additive experience. This is going to sound silly, but for a long time, Facebook did ads really well. I think Facebook has leaned too heavily on, they hear you talking about buying a new couch, so now they send you nothing but new couch ads. But normally, Facebook gives you locally relevant ads for businesses. And you know what's great? When you can't decide where to go to dinner, and Facebook gives you an ad for a new restaurant in your neighborhood. That's what, the, what all of this advertising has to be. It has to be contextual. It has to make sense. There's a reason they show, you know, light beer ads during NFL games. They've done a study. Turns out football fans like beer. There has to be more of that during all of these experiences because a good ad, you know, a commercial for something you're thinking about buying is content. A commercial for something you don't need, like car insurance, because I have car insurance, that's a particularly grading commercial shown over and over is not effective. So I, I like this model. I, I, I don't think we have to pretend that everything is free and that there's some magic way they can just give you this content or these apps or these whatever for free. But I do think they have to get a lot better in how they give you ads. Dan, last question. Streaming viewership, according to Nielsen, surpassed cable TV for the first time in the month of July. Uh, when you look at the numbers, I mean, I mean, just edged out by – Point four percent, but um, I want to get your thoughts about this because based on what we were just talking about, um, I, th I think streaming is the future. Although I'm a little concerned about all these streaming platforms, and are we kind of going back to an a la carte? You know, did cable get it right, and how do we get that get there? But just first, your general reaction to streaming viewer viewership reaching new highs. Yeah, so I'm so glad you, you asked me about this because I went on a rant about it. Like, like three people on my team pitched this as a story. And here's what it's getting wrong. Netflix and Disney and those other streamers are like 20%. I forget what it actually adds up to. When they say streaming, a lot of what they mean as streaming is cable. So I have a cable company. 
And on the main TV in my living room, there's a cable box. And the other two TVs in my house, I watch cable over an app. You know what that is? Streaming. Hulu Live, streaming. Mm -hmm. YouTube Live, Sling TV, all streaming. But what am I watching? I'm watching cable. So the delivery method and the pipeline has changed. Yes. And obviously the cable world has shrunk. But what's changed is how you get your traditional television package. It's not this massive world like Disney. And this is amazing because Disney, you know, Disney Plus is about two thirds or a little over half what what, what Netflix does for subscribers. Disney represents way less streaming volume. That's because we get Disney. Now, little kids, people with little kids, this isn't true. But you and I get Disney because we're watching one hour a week of whatever the new Star Wars or Marvel show is. With Netflix, it's a volume play. With cable, you just have cable on in the background. So, again, that is a prime example, and I'm the media, where that graphic was put out and no one put any context on it. Everyone just said, oh, my God, streaming. And the reality is, we are going to see the death of an awful lot of streaming. There is not enough room for all of these players to exist. And yes, I think we're, we're moving into a weird a la carte world where people like so want choice so much that they're going to end up paying $22 for their ESPN package and then not have all the incidental channels they want. Um, but at the end of the day, I actually think we're all going to pay for some version of basic cable that includes a lot of this stuff because you know what's great? Having 80 channels. My wife and I don't watch the same things. We have some things we watch together. We have some things that that we each watch. And I have cable through my HOA. And if I didn't, I'd have to get cable because there's just too many things out there. So be careful with the graphics you look at. Uh, This is not what it looks like. But realize that we're in the early stages, I'd say second inning of the game here, of consolidation and change in this industry. Dan, uh, to that end, uh, the new Andor trailer, that's a character from Rogue One, uh, dropped, I think, yesterday or the day before. Did you check it out? I did. And uh, I'm excited because I'm a Star Wars fan. I have to say, I am a little wary about these shows where you know what happened to the character. Yeah. I, I, I think that's sort of why Solo failed. And I know this is an ancillary character, but, but there's nothing open-ended about it. Like, I understand why, yes, we, we know how things end for Luke Skywalker, in a sense, but here's why his adventures would be interesting. He's such a big character. I'm not so sure a minor character who, you know, if you haven't seen Rogue One, uh, we close years now, who, who dies in Rogue One. I'm just not so sure that's going to resonate, but that may not be the goal here. This may not be a Obi-Wan or Mandalorian-level play where, where they're trying to get a mass audience. This might be more of a fan service play. Yeah, they're uh, boy, they're really trying to monetize this uh, Star Wars uh, acquisition, and I don't blame them for that. Um, I'm going to tune in just because I have Disney Plus. If I didn't, I wouldn't really care, even though I like the character. Um, but I, I go go back to Dan. I got to wrap it, but I'm just going to say I really like the Clone Wars when it was it was Obi Wan like that. It was a cartoon, and it was Obi Wan and um, Anakin and Ahsoka. I thought that was really cool. Um, I liked I liked that a lot. Dan Klein, always a pleasure chatting with you. Steph, Steph, thank you so much for stopping by the program, and we look forward to speaking with you again very soon. I'll see you soon, Jeff. Thank you. Bye, Dan. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to. 
Drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website. That's www.broadcastretirementnetwork.com. And, of course, our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of BRNAM. We'll have a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.